From Orange County, California, you are listening to Taking Flight with Captain Michael Rocket Blackstone. That almost sounds like a fake name. Maybe Marvel's next superhero? Might want to check into that. This is a different type of aviation podcast that is not hosted by a tech geek know-it-all or communist sympathizing wacko, no. Lucky for you, I am your host. With over 30 years and 30,000 hours of flying high-performance aircraft all over the world, 21 years at a major airline, and with over 25 years in the extremely challenging flying business, I hope to become your personal coach to get you started in your career in aviation as a pilot and to help you identify and survive this industry's many pitfalls and booby traps along the way. This podcast is my personal commitment to helping you succeed in making your dreams of flying for a living or as a hobby come true. We're trying to avoid that happening to your career because that's got to hurt. You are listening to Taking Flight with Captain Michael Rocket Blackstone, Episode 5 today. I promised I'd take you on a ride in, uh, in the Beach 18 cross-country. Uh, recently did that uh, in August of this year and got a chance to really stretch the legs out of this beautiful little bird. We have a, uh, had a 1957 Beach E18S, which is a, a relic. It's a classic airplane, and uh, you might want to look it up on Google. The Beach 18 is the original twin beach. It was the first uh, pretty much airliner that Beach 18 had made uh, in the late 40s and early 50s. This thing became the the perfect corporate airplane for uh, for companies at that time for their executives to travel around. And this was the Gulfstream of 1950. So owning this thing has been an awesome journey. We've had an amazing time owning it and flying it. I feel like the the curator of a of a museum piece. You know, just getting a chance to get around this type of airplane. It has amazing radial engines. They're uh, Pratt and Whitney 985s. They make 450 horsepower per side. So 900 horsepower and a two-bladed Hartzell full feathering propeller on either side with the same prop feathering system like the DC-3. You punch this red button and this thing electrically drives the propeller to feather so it can it can rapidly uh, feather in the event of an engine failure. So and, and just a, an amazing airplane. So I, I loved flying it. I've owned it a lot of years and this was its final mission with me as the captain on this ship, and I was delivering her to her new home on the East Coast to Salem, North Carolina. The guys that bought the airplane um, purchased it essentially sight unseen. They had read the article about the airplane in AOPA in June, I believe, of 2016. The airplane was on the cover. So if you look at AOPA magazine, um, the AOPA pilot magazine, you'll be able to find an article on the Twin Beach uh, that we owned, that I owned with my dad for Blackstone Airways, uh, vintage Beach 18 uh, charter airplane that we flew only a couple of missions and we flew it mostly out to Catalina and then up to Napa and just the local area for nostalgic 
tours and and rides to feel like you're in the in the 40s and 50s. So it was a really cool experience for me and my dad to get a chance to fly an old airliner together. But this mission across the country was going to be its its last mission for me. So it it it, it had a sentimental value to me. And in August of 2020, I sold it and agreed to deliver it to the East Coast with the new owners who didn't have much Beach 18 time. Actually, I don't think even one of them had a uh, uh, a current multi-engine rating. So I, I let them fly out with me and they can get a chance to fly it in the right seat and, and see it. I could show them about the airplane, how to start it and how to operate it, how to fuel it, and to get a few legs in it to... Uh, to, to learn about the aircraft while they see someone who's enjoyed it and knows how to fly it uh, all the way. So uh, with that, I'll take you to our first day. You know, we took off out of Chino, uh, KCNO, if you want to put it in your, your flight planning software. I use ForeFlight. I love ForeFlight. It's an amazing, I, this is not a, a sponsorship or anything, but I use ForeFlight for my flight planning. Uh, I love it for many reasons. It's got a great moving map. I use it on my phone. I can recharge it in flight with a little battery pack. I use a uh, portable battery pack that's pretty big and it and it can power this thing all day long. And I use it as my backup in, in addition to what the aircraft was equipped with, which was the the uh, GNS 530, which is a Garmin product, which I also love and it's not sponsored. I love, love Garmin anyway, but it's a Garmin 530 and it had... Uh, uh, a ADSB put in so you could see traffic on it. So this is a cool old airplane that's very well equipped for IFR flying. And this particular trip didn't have any weather except for a couple of, of uh, scattered rain showers uh, along the way and towards the end of the flight. But for most of the way of its 1911 mile tr- journey, uh, hardly a cloud in the sky for us. And Really, really, it just was a, is an epic flight. So here we were at Chino, KCNO, in, in August. It's a warm day. We got the plane out and ready the day before, put it out on the ramp, fueled it, ran a, a weight and balance on the aircraft. Its gross weight, its max weight that it can, that it can achieve and, and be inside the envelope is 9,600 pounds. And its empty weight somewhere around 7,400, I believe. So about 2,200 pounds of useful load. And what that means is, is you're going to have to balance out how much fuel and how much, uh, how many, much cargo do you want to carry and, and, and payload. So in an airplane, we measure, measure its capability. So we take its empty weight and then we uh, add a, all of the maximum weight that you can carry up to its maximum gross weight. In this particular case, this aircraft, which uh, is, is a quite capable airplane, has a 2,200-pound useful load. So we, what we did was I figured out how much everybody weighed and we ran it through the weight and balance and, and I'm pretty small. So I weigh 145 pounds. The other guy was also lightweight. He weighed about 150 pounds. And the uh, third gentleman was heavier. He's 180 pounds. So the three of us is all it was going to go in the airplane and the rest we can carry in fuel and in a little baggage. We, we had a small bag and uh, we we were just going to fly all the way through if we could and over the least amount of time. So we had small bags, about 100 pounds of cargo, including some oil for the engines. We carried that with us in the cargo bay uh, in the back of the airplane. And the rest was fuel. So um, so I ran the weight and balance on it and got it all the way up to the, to the maximum amount of fuel that we could carry, which we figured out to be about 150 gallons in the main tanks and 120 gallons in the outboards, and that got us right up uh, up against the 
9,500 pounds and uh, let's see, 95.33 is what we maxed out. That was the heaviest we could go with, with the people that we had on board. So we, fa- we maxed it out on gas and uh, took off at a Chino. Beautiful climb out, uh, hung a slight right-hand turn. I'm looking at the, at the chart now as we did it. And we headed uh, south and southeast out over a, uh, to the right of and to the south of Palm Springs and right over the top of the mountains. This thing has, has superchargers on it. And not too many, peop- many people are, are familiar with superchargers on airplanes. It's an older design that, that they used a lot in, in World War II. And superchargers allow airplanes to go up higher and still be able to maintain uh, high manifold pressures, such as like sea level pressure, up to a certain altitude, and then it starts to, to bleed off again. So w- what this airplane it does is it gives it some pretty awesome uh, horsepower to higher altitudes. It allows us to climb up real easy. So we climbed out out of Chino, slight right-hand turn, went just to the right of, of uh, the Banning Pass there, and then edged down to the southeast, heading towards the Phoenix. Uh, let's see what we got here. Let me zoom in. And uh, we passed a little south of Phoenix there. And we were flying, I don't know, 8,500 feet, just a nice cool altitude. In, in, In unpressurized airplanes, what we tend to do is fly at an altitude that gets you the fuel burn that you like. And in the Beach 18, that equates to about 45, 47 gallons an hour. Uh, and then at cruise, we can pull it back a little bit and get into like the 41, 43 gallon an hour range, pull the props back, get it nice and quiet to, uh, I believe like 1900, 1850 on the RPM, and then lean the mixtures out to get it at the EGT to be rich a peak. And it, it simmers down somewhere around the 42, 43 gallon an hour range, and you motor along. And we were able to achieve approximately 130 knots uh, over the course. of That was the average ground speed of over the trip. And there were times when we were in the 170, 180 knot range. We didn't have have a lot of help from the wind. So um, we just motored along, had a great time. We weren't very high. We were able to enjoy all the views all the way along the route, uh, which we saw the Salton Sea off to the right there and then south of Phoenix and we were heading to a place called Safford, Arizona, which was, uh, let's see, 407 nautical miles was our first stop to, uh, to get gas. And we were just kind of feeling it out. We wanted to, to make a stop along the way. And the next range uh, farther east was, was pretty far. So we, did, we just landed short, really, just to kind of get things warmed up. And it was a warm day. So we, we weren't sure about carrying a lot of extra fuel out of the higher temperatures. That particular day in Safford, it was 43 degrees centigrade, about 108 degrees Fahrenheit. And with that temperature, um, we had to start thinking about some uh, what we call density altitude uh, uh, problem to, to work out. So we want to know how much weight we can carry off this runway at, at a density altitude of 6,980 feet. This is what it worked out to be. The field elevation is 3,178. So you think, oh, well, we're good to go. We're at 3,000 feet. But when you add the, the effect of the temperature on an airport that's at that high of an altitude, you start to get a pretty high apparent, like a field elevation. The airplane feels 
that it's that it's at nearly seven thousand feet. So your performance is usually very very degraded there, and and it would be in a normally aspirated uh, airplane, in a non turbocharged airplane, in a non supercharged airplane. That's a pretty serious hit. But in the Beach 18, we ran the numbers. The plane was going to get off the ground and longer longer ground roll than usual. But the power was there, and this airplane continued to climb out and do a beautiful. Uh, departure off of, I believe we used runway 26 that day. It was like almost a 4,800-foot runway. Got off midfield, climbed out beautifully, even on a 108-degree day from nearly 7,000 feet. So what a capable airplane. It was really impressive to see it climb out of uh, Safford, Arizona in the middle of of August um, in our Beach 18, climbing out to the east. We did a 180 out of uh, Safford and headed east. Well, now we've got ourselves another full load of gas, as much as we can carry. It was about uh, uh, somewhere in the, let's see, it was 150 gallons and uh, 120. So we've got 270 gallons of gas on board and three people. So now we've got some range capability in this airplane. As we head east, we put in our GPS uh, a couple of locations out to the southeast let me kind of zoom out here on my map and took off out of Safford, kind of headed southeast. There's a giant restricted area north of El Paso. It's massive and, uh, and it's a military area there. So we headed southeast to go south of that area out towards, we're going to go right over El Paso. We're probably flying around six or 8,000 feet through there. Now we also fly different altitudes depending on the temperature. You certainly wouldn't want to fly over the desert in California at lower altitudes in the middle of summer. It's going to be 110 degrees on the ground and it could very well be you know, 90 or 100 degrees in the airplane. So you fly higher. And as you fly higher, the temperature drops at about three degrees per thousand Fahrenheit, uh, about two degrees per thousand uh, centigrade as you climb and you get a cooler temperature in, in a normal in a normal cooling ratio as you climb higher and that gets you to the proper altitude where you can get some good fuel burn and get a cooler temperature in the cockpit you open up the little vents and the the air comes in from outside and it's usually pretty comfortable now another cool feature about the beach 18 that we had was it had air conditioning which is very unusual for a, a 1950s airplane but you flip the electric air conditioning on and it really really cools the cabin down, which was kind of a nice luxury on a nice old airplane. But we were heading uh, southeast, climbed on back up to about 8,500 feet or so. We're VFR. In other words, we're just flying visual conditions, enjoying the view. We're not on a flight plan per se. We're not going, you know, VOR to VOR. We're just going direct as the crow flies, avoiding airspace issues and avoiding terrain and just heading out towards our our next waypoint. And in this case, it was out... uh, pretty much right over El Paso, and then uh, a slight left-hand turn once we got past the airspace issues and headed to a another airport, uh, CWC, which is uh, a, a place called Kickapoo, Kickapoo, Texas. It's a place very close, kind of southeast of Wichita uh, Falls in, in Texas. And the leg on that flight between Safford and Kickapoo 594 nautical miles we did and uh if you're keeping track of the time on how on how how far we've gone and how fast we were flying that first leg was three hours on my in my logbook and the second leg with 594 nautical miles was 
three hours, and we measure hours in tenths. So you think 4.3, is that four hours and 30 minutes? Like, no, no, it's it's six minutes per tenth. So you take six and you multiply it times the three and you get four hours and 18 minutes was our, our second leg. And now this airplane's super comfortable to fly. It's a cabin size airplane. In other words, you can get out of the seat and stretch your legs. If you got two pilots up there, one can get up, he can stretch his legs, he can go back, he can use the lavatory, which is nice. In 1954, we had a lav in the back and we'd bring some uh, Gatorades, bring some snacks, we had some power bars, we had some fruits, some uh, some nuts, you know, some uh, trail mix. So we, we had everything we needed and we can actually get up and stay up for a really long time. And if you get, uh, get to where you need a little break, you certainly could step to the back, come on back up and uh, continue your flight. So we're on our way to Kickapoo and we are now uh, getting into darkness. I, I remember it being late afternoon as we as we rounded the corner there near near El Paso and started heading to the northeast and a beautiful beautiful sunset as we're heading northeast I'm looking over my left shoulder there's a couple thunderstorms out way to the north of us the the sunset is illuminating the thunderstorm and I'm seeing the shimmer of the the sunset in the the shine on the left wing as I'm looking out over my left shoulder, I'm, I'm flying the left seat of this thing, obviously. So I'm looking out the left side and the sunset is going down. And I might even post these photos on Instagram at some point so you guys can see them. But the, uh, the sunset that we had between uh, Safford and Kickapoo, epic, as we're heading off into the northeast into the darkness, landed in Kickapoo just you know, about uh, about an hour after sunset, it got it got good and dark, and the sun uh, had set and the moon was coming up, and we weren't really I'd never been there before, so we weren't really sure exactly how the airport was going to look. So what I did was descend down, slow down, and enter the pattern. Uh, over the top of the airport. Now this airport, of course, doesn't have a control tower operating at that point, and there are certain procedures for landing an airplane at an airport at night with no control tower. Totally safe, totally doable. All we need to do is make some radio calls as we approach, let other traffic in the area know what we're going to do, listen for the wind. And if you can't if you can't hear any wind or you can't uh, pull the weather for the wind, you'll fly over the airport and look down and see if you can see the windsock and notice whether which way it's blowing so you can determine which way will be best to land. And airplanes always want to land and you should always land into the wind. So if you have a choice and you see a, a windsock, you'll land this airplane with the, the skinny end uh, on your nose and you're going to land with the mouth of the, of the windsock away from you. So you're, you're pointing into the wind when you land to reduce your ground speed. So as you touch down, you're going the slowest speed possible uh, when you land so you have less energy to dissipate in the rollout. So we flew over the airport. There's almost no wind. Slowed the airplane down to 120 knots and dropped the gear. And we used the the gear to uh, to help slow the plane down a little bit. And to uh, we used the wind up from the forward velocity of the wind to help bring the wheels down. On a, on this Beach 18, it's a tricycle gear one. So it it actually the wheels go forward up into the wells and. When you, when you put the gear down on a Beach 18E 
model with the tricycle gear, the wind helps to bring the wheels down. So you a little bit more speed on it's good. So 120 to 140 knots is, is kind of the speed that you need to help bring the wheels down with the electric motor. And uh, then you put a little flap out at about 100 100 uh, knots, we'll sneak a little bit of flap out, maybe flaps 10 or flaps 15 out, we'll run those out. And then uh, swooping in left base to land on a a beautifully lit uh, runway in the middle of the night out here in in, uh, Wichita Falls and made a nice, beautiful landing in Kickapoo, parked this thing and tied it down just near the FBO there. I'm sure they got a nice surprise in the morning when they show up, they they, they left the, the operation there at night with nothing out there and they show up in the morning and there's this giant, beautiful, uh, twin beach 18 sitting out on their ramp, uh, chalked and, uh, and tied down. It was, it was pretty cool. So from that point, we spent the night, uh, went to a, uh, I can't remember where we stayed. doesn't really matter. Some little local place, uh, had a Uber take us to a, a cool little, little hotel type situation. Had the Uber guy stop and get us a pizza. We had a pizza and, uh, cool refreshing beverage and 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 celebrated enjoyed our our first seven hours and 18 minutes of flying the beach 18 together literally over halfway across the country in in one day so it was really an amazing display of of what the airplane is capable of flying uh at that point let's see uh over a thousand miles pretty much exactly a thousand miles um from chino to wichita falls in one day in seven hours and 18 minutes. The next morning we got up relatively early. This wasn't a, a rushed uh, flight. So we got up relatively early, had breakfast in Kickapoo and uh, went to fuel the airplane. So we got it out out there. We pre-flighted it, put a little bit of oil in it. And to my surprise, it hardly burned any oil. You know, I put maybe a, a gallon in each side, which, you know, was not very much oil for flying you know, seven hours or so in the airplane and, and just kind of brought the oils back up to what I like to keep it at, at least seven or when you're going to fly it a long time, seven, seven and a half gallons of oil uh, per side. We measure the oil in this airplane in gallons, not in quarts. So it, it the minimum that I would want to fly it with is about six gallons of oil for a starting uh, oil quantity and the, the lowest quantity that... Uh, that I would ever take off with is six. It could, it could run on five, four, three gallons of oil. We mostly use the oil for cooling. So I like to have uh, enough oil to, for sure, get me all the way to where I want to go. And I, I use the extra oil to help cool the motor. So it, whenever I can, I, I top it back up and I tend to fly it around with about seven gallons of oil in. And if I saw anything less than, than six, I'm definitely adding a gallon or so, maybe two gallons into... Uh, to top it up. So that's uh, day one. Uh, We fueled it there. We put another 270 gallons of fuel back in it and took off again. Uh, I had a guy there that filmed our takeoff. I got a nice video of us taking off out of uh, Kickapoo and we headed northeast to a really cool little place called Tullahoma. And these guys wanted to stop in Tullahoma for a very specific reason. And the reason was, and uh, Tullahoma is in Tennessee. And the reason was that Tullahoma is the 
I'm looking at it on the map here now. Tullahoma is the the home of the Beechcraft uh, Museum. It's where all of the very first Beechcrafts ever made are parked. Uh, like the number one Beechcraft that's that's ever been made there. It's it's a uh, a beach tagger wing is there that that was the number one. It's a really cool spot. So if you ever get a chance to, to go there, it's incredible. It's uh, in Tennessee. I believe it's northwest of, let me see if I can zoom in on it here. If it's uh, northwest of like Nashville. So I'm kind of paging through. So check it out. Tullahoma is a Tango Hotel Alpha. And the distance between uh, Kickapoo and Tullahoma was 612 miles. And we did it all in one, one leg. So that was pretty cool. It was 4.4 hours. So four hours and 24 minutes uh, all the way to Tullahoma. And of course, when we, when we were there, we had to uh, do a low approach at Tullahoma to look for for wildlife, you know, it's sometimes when you could go to really uh, out far out stations and you land at places that don't have a lot of traffic, there could very well be deer, there could be uh, cows, there could be coyotes on the runway. And it's always a good idea, especially if you're at the Beechcraft uh, Museum, location of the Beechcraft Museum, and they're waiting for you um, to do a low approach to make sure you you flush out any any wildlife that may be on the on the runway, and we made sure we did that, and uh, put the props up a little higher so it made a little bit of a little bit more noise, and people can hear the sound of two 985s purring it at a nice nice uh, nice low grumble as she flew around the patch there. We put drop the wheels down at 120 140 miles an hour and uh, 140 knots, and slowed her down and. Beautiful approach. I think we might have had my best landing ever at Tullahoma in the Beach 18. It's a, if you're going to do a good one, you may as well do it at the Beechcraft uh, Museum in Tennessee. And we did that. We got an amazing tour there in Tullahoma. I highly recommend it. You should go and see the guys at the Beechcraft Museum that own it and and take care of these old aircraft. It's a it's a labor of love. I'm sure. It's a beautiful facility. You can see all these amazing, uh, really historically valuable aircraft, and the condition they keep them in is incredible, really nice people. So be sure you stop by there next time you visit the Tullahoma, Tennessee area. We spent the night there after we got the, the, the tour of the museum, spent the night in Tullahoma, and the next day I got to meet the, the gentleman who's going to be the pilot who's going to fly the Twin Beach 90 Tango Tango for the two gentlemen that purchased it from me. And uh, I met him and I let him fly the last leg from Tullahoma to uh, INT, which is Winston-Salem. That's where they were on their way. That's where it lives now. And uh, I sat in the right seat and uh, gave him some guidance on how to start the airplane and how to fly it. He's already got time in radial engines. He's already got time in beaches and other, other similar aircraft. But I wanted to give him the intricacies of starting and flying this Beach 18 because each airplane is just a little bit different. So I walked him through it and I can kind of run you through the starting procedure of a Beach 18 if you're interested. The, uh, the process is, is kind of cumbersome, but cool. It's like starting a, like a train engine or something. But the way I think of it is I just bring the mixtures rich, turn the boost pumps on, 
throttles full forward and uh, stroke the throttle of the engine you're going to start. So let's say we're going to start the left one, boost pumps on, we're going to stroke the left throttle wide open and closed. One, two, three strokes, crack the throttle, leave the boost pump on now, reach over to the extreme far left of the panel, throw the lever to the left side because we're going to start the left engine. So left starter is is a toggle switch to the left. Then there's three buttons you got to press. So I press the starter button to to engage the starter and start the propeller turning. And after two complete rotations, I add the two outboard buttons, which is the exciter and the primer, and get the 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 final turn with all three buttons pressed as I reach down with my right hand and throw on the mags, and it lights off immediately. So you get a nice smooth start, a little sputter, a little puff of smoke, and smoothly comes up to idle. Boost pump off, switch the starter to the uh, on that side, switch the starter, uh, switch to the right side, turn on the right boost pump, and repeat the process for the right engine. So that's how you get the beach started. Taxis beautifully. The twin beach nose wheel version of it is a little tricky to handle on the ground. It's, it's, it, when I fly tail dragger airplanes, to me, a steerable tail wheel is, is almost easier than this. And in the twin beach, you might be familiar with some airplanes that have uh, a, a free castering nose wheel. There are quite a few training airplane now, training airplanes that have that. And you have to use either differential braking, which you have to do on a single engine, or in a twin engine, you can use differential thrust. By, by walking one throttle forward of the other, just ever so slightly, you can get maybe like, if you want to go to the right, you bring the left throttle up maybe at half knob width difference and the left engine's running just a little bit faster and it starts to pull the nose to the right. I can steer it with differential power very, very easily on the beach. And it can kind of go too much if you, if you put a little too much throttle. So, so smooth and easy on the throttles. That's how you steer the beach 18. If you want to go the other way, roll the left throttle back, increase the, the right throttle to get the wheel to go straight again. And when it's going straight, match the throttles, push them up gently. And that's how you taxi it. For the takeoff in the Beach 18, now we're going to, I'm talking him through this, and he's going to be flying this thing from Tullahoma to Winston-Salem, which is another uh, 298 miles to go for 2.6 more hours. I'm walking him through how to do the takeoff in the Twin Beach with the nose gear. I believe he was a tailwheel Beach 18 pilot, so it was a little different for him. But the way I fly it, and maybe you fly it the same way in the in the in the tail dragger, I'd probably do the same thing in that plane as well, which is with my right hand on the throttle, flying it from the left seat. I get out on the runway using the procedure I just showed you with the taxiing, straighten the, the nose wheel out, differential power to get the wheel exactly straight, and then advance the left throttle slightly ahead of the right, maybe a you know, 100 RPM, to get the airplane to start to accelerate. And as it's starting to accelerate, matching the throttle with the with a slight rotation of the wrist to bring the right throttle up and match it as I bring both throttles forward simultaneously. Now, remember, we got torque to deal with, and this airplane wants to go left. So I, I bring that left throttle up to compensate for that left turning tendency. I'm going to try to stop some of that with the left engine, then matching the right while I'm waiting for the airplane to accelerate fast enough to start working with the rudder pedals to to control the rudder with my feet now. Because remember, I can't steer the nose wheel to control the torque like you can on some planes. So I'm controlling the torque with the throttles initially. And if, if it does start to still drift left, I would have a little more left throttle to stop it. And if I needed to, 
to keep it from coming left, I can tap the right brake. Now, I really don't like doing that, and that's like a last resort. I don't want to be tapping the brake on the takeoff roll. So I want to accelerate. I want to get airborne, and dragging a brake isn't really going to help my ground roll distance. So I definitely don't like that, but if I had to, that is the only other way to steer until you get rudder authority on this airplane. So now it's accelerating. Things are moving. We get up past 80 knots indicated. That's our VMC speed. That's the speed that we got to attain on the ground before we lift this airplane into the air so that we can climb out safely and accelerate to 100 and, at 102 knots is the, uh, is the single engine best rate of climb speed. So get to 80, start to lift the nose off. Now we're 90, nose is off, we're flying, the wheels are coming off the ground. And then we say to ourselves, positive rate, gear up, and raise the gear handle, accelerate. Now, just, I just lower the back, lower the nose by reducing the back pressure slightly to accelerate, get myself accelerated to about 100 miles an hour, flaps up, and now we maintain the 100. So now we're best single engine uh, climb speed, rate of climb speed, straight out until we get, get high enough to, to, uh, to reduce the power and do, and do a, a climb check. So that's, that's how you take off. So I talked him through that. And now we're on our way to Winston-Salem. Of course, there's a little weather for his leg. I managed to get all the good legs, but now he's going to get a little weather along the way. And uh, for two hours and uh, 2.6, so six times six, 36. So two hours and 36 minutes later, we're we're approaching Winston-Salem. We've dodged a little bit of weather and beautiful puffy clouds and just a few little rain showers here and there. It was really not significant, but it was certainly more challenging than the, the legs that I had in terms of weather. And of course, swooped in. Now they're coming into their home airport. And the gentleman flying, uh, of course, he opted for a low approach as well to search for uh, wildlife on the field. And all of the family members were there waiting for us to arrive in their brand new uh, vintage 1957 Beach 18, 90 Tango Tangos entering the pattern. And if the, the family's watching us and they're filming. And uh, of course, the low approach swoop back around, make a beautiful landing, roll out, and came into a, a group of cheering people that are super excited to have a Twin Beach in their life uh, that they can take on beautiful trips to wherever the 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 spirit moves them. I believe these, these folks were looking at maybe doing some, some journeys to uh, the Southeast. They, they wanted to express an interest to maybe fly to the Keys, maybe fly down to uh, the Caribbean a little bit. Uh, wherever wherever they wanted to go, that airplane would take them there in absolute luxury and style. The leather, the burl wood, the, uh, the paint job, the headsets that were bows and noise canceling throughout, an incredible experience. If you haven't experienced the Beach 18, I highly recommend you do soon because there's not very many of them left flying, certainly in the condition that 90 Tango Tango is in. Uh, if you could find one and, and love those type of airplanes, get one and fly it before the very last Beach 18 is in the museum in Tullahoma. So you have been listening to Taking Flight with Michael Rocket Blackstone as we explored the beautiful journey of flying a twin beach, Beach 18, across country uh, for 14 hours and 18 minutes at approximately 131 and a half knot, nautical miles per hour. 131 knots was our average ground speed. And uh, we burned 715 gallons of gas 
about $2,500 worth of gas. I think it's a small price to pay for three guys to live the dream and fly a cool old vintage airliner across the country, coast to coast. But if you really, really topped this thing up and you wanted to see how far it would go, six hours and 36 minutes of fuel it can carry if you put the 318 gallons of gas on board and fly it with with just two people in it and and no baggage just to see how far you can go and and uh, my dad and I did that in in the Twin Beach when we first bought it from West Palm Beach we flew it all the way across the country in one day we were a little more vigorous in those days and we did it on Father's Day in 2014 uh, in June I'll never forget it and an epic adventure very similar to the one that you just heard on this one across the country. So I flew it across the country from east to west on its first mission, and I flew it across the country from west to east on its last mission. So you've been listening to, one more time, Taking Flight with Michael Rocket Blackstone. It's been my pleasure uh, having you guys listen in and joining with me on this little adventure. If you have any questions or you'd like to, if I something I missed or something you'd like to hear more about, Taking Flight with Rocket at gmail.com. Taking flight with rocket at gmail.com is my email. Email me any questions. I'd be happy to answer them. And on our next episode, episode six, let's make it a surprise episode. I don't really know what it's going to be about, but uh, I'll think of something good and I hope you'll join me for that. We'll see you soon.